Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Anything is absolutely true. To say that anything is binding to all people is now met with scorn and derision and increasingly greater persecution. And so the temptation facing us is to soften the truth to accommodate a generation that the Bible calls crooked and perverse. But that verse goes on to say, in which we shine as lights shining in the darkness. But in order to shine, we must hold firmly to the faith delivered and entrusted to the saints. We must stand strong in a world that calls white, black, bitter, sweet, and good, evil. Because of that, we can't stray even an inch from the doctrines we have been given because the results can be catastrophic. There have been real-life examples of this. Flight KAL-007 originated in New York at 4 a.m. The airliner took off from its intermediate stop in Anchorage, Alaska, headed for Seoul, Korea. But as it flew west because of a navigational malfunction, it began to slowly deviate from its planned route. It should have passed over a navigational waypoint at Bethel, Alaska, on its way to the open ocean. But when it reached Bethel, it had already strayed 12 miles north of its intended path. As it flew on, the distance between the actual and intended flight paths only grew. By the time it neared an oceanic waypoint some 200 miles off the Alaskan coast, the airplane was already 100 miles away from where it should have been. It wasn't on its way to Seoul. Instead, it was traveling at a direction of 245 degrees, flying like an arrow towards the eastern portions of the Soviet Union. According to an investigation from the flight recorder, the crew activated autopilot shortly after taking off from Anchorage and then turned to comply with an air traffic control clearance. It flew for five hours off of its intended course. It was at this point that Soviet fighter jets scrambled to meet the intruder, thinking it was a U.S. spy plane. The Soviet pilot turned and dropped below his lumbering prey. Then he pulled up his nose, lit his afterburners, and locked on. At 3.26 a.m. Tokyo time, he fired two air-to-air missiles. One of them, proximity fuse, exploded behind the target, severing a crucial control line. The Soviet pilot radioed, the target is destroyed, but it had not been. The aircraft remained airborne for at least 12 more minutes. Its pilot struggled to regain control until the airplane finally spiraled into the sea. All 269 people on board were killed. And just like that, what I want us to understand is to what appears to be a minor error in theology or in personal conduct becomes critical once we understand its implications. Look at verse 16 with me. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
the first thing that Jesus tells those questioning him is that his teaching is not just a regurgitation of all the other rabbis, but it has actually been sent from God. And because of that, it both resonates with both power and authority. Now, this is all new to these people. Remember, we are told that everyone is astounded by the teaching of this young Nazarene. When I teach the Word of God, I can claim authority from the Bible, but not for all of my interpretations of the Bible. However, Jesus could rightly claim absolute authority for everything that he taught. Now here the question could be raised, but doesn't every religious teacher make a similar claim? How then can we know that Jesus is teaching us the truth? Here's the answer. We will know only by obeying what he tells us to do. God's word will prove itself true to those who will sincerely do it. The British preacher F.W. Robertson said that obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. Verse 17 literally reads, If any man is willing to do God's will, he shall know. This explains why the Jewish leaders didn't understand the teachings of Jesus. And why couldn't they understand? Because they had stubborn wills and they would not submit to him. So is the Lord here suggesting a pragmatic test for divine truth? Is he saying, hey guys, at least give it a try. If it works, it must be true. And thus suggesting that if it does not work, it must be false. Now this kind of test would lead to confusion. For almost any cultist can say, I tried what the cult teaches and it works for me. For example, the Mormons insist the way you can know that Mormonism is true is you will experience a burning in your bosom. If that were true, every time I ate Mexican food, I would convert to Mormonism. Now, our Lord's statement goes much deeper. He was not suggesting a shallow taste test, but rather a deep personal commitment of that person to the truth. Now, the Jews depended on education and authorities and received their doctrine all secondhand. But Jesus insisted that we can experience the authority of the truth personally. The Jewish leaders were attempting to kill Jesus, yet at the same time, they claimed to understand God's truth and they believed that they were obeying it. This proves that an enlightened and an educated mind is no guarantee of a pure heart or of a sanctified will. Some of the world's worst criminals have been highly intelligent and well-educated people. In verse 17, Jesus says, If any man wants to do his will, then he shall know. The question is, he or she shall know what? And not only that, but how? Can a person know? When the astronomer goes and does his investigation, or when the biologist goes and does her investigation, they have different instruments, don't they? The astronomer has the telescope, and the biologist has the microscope. Like that, Jesus gives you your instrument. If you want to find him, here it is. You have to be willing to do his will. Like any fair-minded fair scientist, you have to say, whatever the conclusion of my investigation, 
I will submit to it. You can't say, well, I'm going to look at what I believe about what Jesus says, but if it messes up with my beliefs, I'm going to jettison it. No scientist can say that. No fair-minded observer can say that. Jesus says if you want to find him, here's the instrument, and it is an infallible instrument. Go to him and say, Lord, if you're real, show me yourself, and I will obey you. I am willing to do your will if you are really who you say that you are. Then pick up a Bible and read about him, and then talk directly to him. Even though you may say, Lord, I don't even know if you can even hear me. Do you have the courage to do that? Do you have the objectivity to do that? If, you'll do, if you do, you'll find that never a man spake like this man. Let the truth deal with you. It's all or it's nothing. Morality and goodness are not good enough. You're not stuck, stuck between a rock and a hard place. You're stuck between a rock, which is your unbelief, and a great place, which is the salvation of Jesus Christ. But to do that, you have to know about him. And to know about him, you have to understand the doctrine concerning him. And to understand the doctrine concerning him, you have to read your Bible. Otherwise, you have no absolute standard to judge anything. And having the, the correct standard is crucial in life. Why? Because man's doctrine and God's doctrine will often differ where man is concerned. Why? Because man's doctrine rests man, or te- rates man by man's standards, and by man's standards, he's not too bad. At any rate, most people are not completely evil. And almost everyone can take comfort from the fact that she is better than someone else. It's what I call the, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler syndrome. The tremendous difference that exists between man's doctrine and God's doctrine leads us to a few conclusions. First, it is only God's doctrine that satisfies. There is no comfort in the speculations of men, at least not in the moment of crisis. If we can be shaken, that which is the product of our minds or hands can be shaken also. The story is told of a Roman Catholic sculptor who lived in Europe. He was dying as he was visited by the priest. The priest talked to him and seeing how ill that he was, prepared to give him last rites. You are dying, he said. He then held up a beautiful, ornate crucifix and said, Look upon your God who died for you. The sculptor looked at it and cried out, Woe is me, for I made that same crucifix. What was he saying? There is no satisfaction in that which is the fruit of our own hands. Human theories will not satisfy in the hour of death. Only divine truth can satisfy. If you say, but I can't believe the Bible, I will tell you one reason why you cannot. You have not yet determined to go the way that God's truth leads, regardless of how it might upset your life. However, once you determine to go God's way, you will know these things are true. What will it be for you? God's doctrine or the doctrine of human beings? Will it be truth or will it be error?
However, accepting or rejecting the claims of Jesus Christ is never just a purely intellectual decision. There are inescapable moral and spiritual implications that are also involved. Those who willingly seek and obey the truth will find it and will be set free from the slavery of ignorance and sin. But notice Jesus said, if any man does his will, he shall know the doctrine. Once again, that teaches us that revelation is directly linked to application. If you do what you've already been told, more will be given to you revealing his doctrine. The problem with us is so frequently is that we don't do what we already know to do, and then we wonder why we can't learn anymore. Truly, obedience is the door through which revelation enters. Now let me point out here that the, the idea of willing to do it isn't like, okay, I'm open to that. It has the idea of willing to do it as, I'm going to seize this, and I'm going to live it to the nth degree. I'm going to put it to the test in my life and see if it holds up to the highs and lows of life. There was a real commitment attached to it. Now, I've often thought of this in connection with Psalm 119. This is starting at the 101st verse. It says, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Do we want to keep our feet from every false and evil way? The only way to ensure that is through the biblical precepts that we can get understanding. And through that understanding, we get the, the understanding of the deceitfulness of sin. Then we learn not only to avoid sin, but to actually hate the sin. But once again, it's not enough to just give mental assent to this. We have to put the truth into practice in order for it to work. Now listen to verse 105 of that psalm. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The thing I want you to consider is the word lamp. The Hebrew idea is that of a candle. Now please think about this. Back then there weren't flashlights where you could shine it several yards ahead of you to illuminate the path you were traveling on. So if all you have is a candle... All you can do is basically take a step, and then and only then will it illuminate your next step. That is precisely how it works with the scripture. God's word provides us with light in this sense. We are given commands, and as we obey those commands, we are given even more light to take the next step. So... If you feel like your Christian life is pretty much at a standstill, if you look at other vibrant believers and you say to yourself, I wish I had a robust faith like theirs. If you are in that situation, if I were you, I would get alone with the Lord and then ask him to reveal to me areas in my life where I wasn't obeying the word and walking in the light. 
I'm speaking from experience here. If I know God is dealing with me in an area of unconfessed sin or unsurrendered appetites, if I refuse to deal with those things, my Christian life turns from joy and purpose to duty and drudgery. The Apostle John put it like this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now get this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from every sin. What is that saying to us? For our purposes this morning, I want us to understand that there is only one way to have true fellowship with God, and that is to walk in the light. And from that, we can also have true Christian fellowship with one another. Jesus says, if a person wills to do this, then and only then he will know. And that word know in the Greek means a knowledge that comes from experience. And so if you put forth the effort to live the Christian life in a consistent and in a prayerful manner, you will come away with a knowledge of both who you are and who God is that no university or seminary could ever teach you. If you think about it, Satan offered Adam and Eve knowledge, but it was knowledge based on disobedience. In contrast, Jesus offered knowledge as a result of obedience. First came the yoke of responsibility, then the joy of knowing God's truth. G. Campbell Morgan said it perfectly. When men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine and that is the teaching that comes from God. The Lord's challenge to the crowd was really simple. If they would humble themselves before God's word, wherein his will is, and if they were willing to know it and also obey it, then they would come to a sure realization that his teaching was true. And that challenge still stands two millennia later. The assurance promised in this verse is available to all sincere believers. Now, such confidence only comes through the Holy Spirit who confirms the truth about Christ, but only to the willing and to the obedient heart. It presents both internally through the testimony and externally through the manifestations that demonstrate the truth of the gospel. Jesus then tells us in verse 19 that those who speak from within themselves most often speak to attain glory for themselves. This is a verse that hits close to home in my own life. Anytime God gives a man power over a group of people, that man should be extremely careful in how he discharges that duty. I always want to remember that anything God does in my service to him is only through his grace. I wasn't here the last two Sundays, and guess what? Calvary Chapel didn't miss a beat and just kept plugging right along. That reminds me that none of us are indispensable. If I went off the rails, God could easily replace me. This means all the glory is to go to him, and none of it is to go to me. I've been told that all pastors should be careful of the three G's, 
glory, greed, and girls. The only one that really concerns me is the glory one. And the reason is, I've set up safeguards with John Biscop concerning the finances, so I've got greed covered. And as far as girls are concerned, I'm so busy, I told Connie if I ever wanted to have an affair, she'd have to arrange it for me. (laughs) All I'm saying is, there's really only ultimately one person in the universe that we, may, that we may need to make sure that we please. From an eternal perspective, we live our lives performing for an audience of just one, and that is God Almighty. So I ask us, when the camera isn't on you, what do you do? In real time, in real life, how do you show up? And I mean the the real you, not the carefully constructed social media version of you. But let's be clear, that world is just a stage. And when we step onto it, we are just players performing before an audience. But who are we out of the spotlight when we're not performing before an audience? Whether you are the intern or a CEO, whether you're running your household or running a company, whether you're living in a basement or living in a penthouse, whether you're doing the grunt work or getting the glory, life is always rolling. Let's all make sure that we live our lives in such a way that at the end, there can be rejoicing instead of regretting. Look at verse 19 with me. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? People answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? The first statement the Lord made was that anyone trusting in the law will be condemned by the law. Why? Because no one can keep it perfectly. I know this is somewhat veiled in this specific conversation due to the fact that Christ was speaking directly to those men who hated him. Yet this is the general teaching. Jesus said, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Would these men make law their standard? Well then, the law would condemn them. They would try to use the law to attempt to prove that Jesus was a sinner, but even while they were doing it, the law would condemn them for their hatred and their murderous designs. The reason is seen in the nature of God's law, which is to demand absolute and total perfection. The law says... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So it would follow that if salvation could come by any law, then it would be God's law. God's law is perfect, yet no one can keep it. Hence, its very perfection condemns us. So Christ's first point was an important one. Anyone trusting in the law will be condemned by that same law. If we are to be saved, salvation must come through a different road entirely. The law was given to show us we can't keep it, and that's why we need a Savior. Let me put it this way. Our inability to keep the law is the proof that none of us are good enough. Because of the fall We are all hardwired for rebellion. 
Let me give you an example from my days as a youth. Imagine you're me. Mean little Billy. Fourth grade. Mercer Elementary School. Go Pirates. Anyway, one spring day, the local fire department shows up to talk to us about fire safety. And at the end of the day, they set a waste paper can on fire and then put it out with an extinguisher. They, then they make a big presentation of telling us to not play with fire. I, of course, can look back on that and realize they were hoping to instill within us a healthy respect and fear of fire. The problem was, as a self-confessed pyromaniac, it had just the opposite effect on me. I mean, up until the time they pulled me out of class and set things ablaze, I had thought nothing of playing with any type of flame. But now that they said not to do it for the rest of the day, I'm just trembling with excitement and anticipation until I can get home and find a book of matches. That's what the law does. It gives us rules just so we know that we can't keep them. So then what is the purpose of the law? Well, James describes the law as a mirror, and the author of Hebrews describes it as a shadow. Let's look at both of those. First, the law can be compared to a mirror. Now, the function of a mirror is to show you your face, and if your face is dirty, to show you that your face is dirty. The purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. Imagine a person coming to the house after a hard day's work, looking into a mirror and discovering that their face was dirty. Now imagine them taking the mirror off the wall and attempting to wash their face with it. How ridiculous. Yes, but it's no more ridiculous than the folly of a man who thinks he can be made righteous by the law's righteous standards. The purpose of the mirror is to drive one to the soap and the water. Next we see it described as a shadow. Now a shadow is a poor substitute of the real thing. Think of it this way. Your spouse has been gone on a trip for two weeks. You're waiting for them, and as they step out of the car and they approach you for an embrace, instead of leaning down to kiss them, you lean down and start kissing the shadow at their feet. What do you think they're going to say to you? Probably something like, you're off your meds again, aren't you? In the same way, the function of the law should drive one who discovers it to discover their sin by the means of that law to drive them to Christ. It's meant to point to a greater reality that, of course, being Jesus. That was the most accurate statement the Lord can make as to the truth of human sinfulness. No one can keep the law. That is the reality in every human life. Though the Jews revered the law of Moses and sought to keep it, and thereby tried to obtain salvation through it, no one has ever entered the kingdom by keeping the law. This is the unmistakable teaching of the entire New Testament. The law of Moses was made to reveal sin and never to save. But the Jews had perverted it to be a means of salvation and refused to be indicted by it and driven to the mercy of God in the Messiah. No matter how hard they studied and endeavored to apply the law, it was clear that they failed. 
They refuse to allow the law to do its convicting work and humble them and driving them to repentance and faith in Christ. Because the Bible says he is the end of the law. But they were so far from understanding the law's purpose that they rejected not only the one who could deliver them from the law's condemnation, they instead actually sought to kill him. So as we finish up this morning, many years ago, towards the end of the 12th century, Scotland's great king, Robert the Bruce, was being chased by English soldiers. They were almost upon him, so he realized that he was not making the speed he needed to get away. He left the path and darted through the moorlands and thick forest, hoping to escape. Robert ran mile after mile. But then, just as he was telling himself that perhaps he had finally escaped the vengeance of King Edward, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. It was the bane of his own bloodhounds. He knew the English, fearing that they would lose him in the thicket, let loose his own bloodhounds, putting them on his track. The animals who were supposed to protect their master were actually serving the English by running him down. Robert knew that it was all over for him unless he could succeed in putting something between himself and the hounds that just might throw off the scent. Desperate now and completely exhausted, he stumbled until he came upon a clear mountain brook. And once he plunged in and allowed him, it allowed, he allowed it to sweep him down two, two miles down the stream. And then he came out on the other side of the forest. He then listened as the hounds came up to the water and were able to go no further. The scent was gone. The king had escaped from his enemies. You can easily see the application. The law, which is supposed to do us good, actually serves to hurt us and betray us. We are lost unless we plunge into that stream that will wash away the scent of sin forever. And Jesus is that stream. Will you come to him? Will you drink of him? Will you allow his blood to cleanse you? For there is still a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And he is still this morning mighty to save. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. None of us can keep the law. None of us are moral enough or good enough in anything that we could try to do. We are all, as the Bible says, as unclean rags. The best we have to offer is filthy in the sight of a holy God. But we thank you, Lord, that you made the, the way for us to come to you. Later on in this book, Lord, you're going to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me. Draw us towards you, Lord, whether it is in salvation, whether it is by sanctification, or whether we just need strength and encouragement to go on. You know every heart within the sound of my voice. I pray you would do that in your name, Lord. Amen.